Hello, Luxury Stance listeners. I'm Scott Kerr, and I'm here with my podcast partner in crime, Mickey Alam Khan, who is fresh off of hosting the Luxury Outlook Summit here in New York City. It was a great intimate gathering of luxury executives from different sectors of the industry, a parade of thought-provoking speakers and panelists covering a wide range of relevant topics in the luxury industry. Hello, Mickey. How are you doing? Great. Thank you so much, Scott. I really appreciate being back on our wonderful podcast. Uh, last week was busy, as you know, you were there. Yeah. I want to congratulate uh, you on that. Yeah, it was. I thought it was a successful event. What was your big takeaway? Yes, uh, I think it just showed that, you know, people crave uh, intimate events, you know, the opportunity to network and share insights and observations with each other. You know, we I do executive summits. So I limit the number of people in the room to 100, 115 people. And, you know, we had uh, 100 brands and retailers and agency executives in the room. Yeah. And I think the overall tenor was one of optimism, cautious optimism. Yeah, which is perfect because I think people are craving for these days also is good news. And, you know, Richemont delivered in a big way recently and really could bring a glimmer of hope about what 2024 will hold for the luxury sector. Things were looking pretty dim. I have to admit that over the past few months in 2023, you know, kind of pointing to a slowdown in consumer spending and more specifically in the sales of luxury goods. Burberry didn't help the situation there with their recent profit warnings, just fueled that fire. And then along comes Richemont delivering a Q3 sales rise of about 4% with significant contributions from Japan, Asia Pacific, and the Americas regions. Jewelry was Richemont's top performing division with sales at Cartier and Van Cleef and Arpels really popping. And to top that off, Brunello Cuccinelli demonstrated that the quiet luxury boom was still going strong with fourth quarter revenue up better than expected, like 24%. I'm feeling more optimistic, Mickey, are you? I am. And Scott, you summarize it so well. I think the biggest mistake that folks who observe the luxury industry make is they tar the entire business with one brush. So right. you mentioned all these brands. What you have to understand is that each and every one of them up their game. And the ones who didn't up their game or who didn't meet market acceptance were the ones who suffered. So it's not a pullback from luxury spending. What it is, is Brunello and, you know, Richemont's brands and Hermes and, you know, even LVMH brands, they all upped their game. They all improved their marketing, their merchandising, and their outreach to customers, and it paid off. At the end of the day, when you're dealing with luxury purchases, you're dealing with creating desire. Right. Did those products create desire in their intended targets, minds, and hearts? So the ones that did, their numbers were great. The ones that could not convince the customers, the numbers fell back. So to me, what these results show is that luxury is all about creating desire, all about uh, you know uh, creating products that are fresh, uh, that are innovative, that are creative, and that basically appeal to all generations, whether it's Gen Z or Gen Y or boomers or even gen x's 
And this Thursday, LVMH will be showing its full year results. So I think everybody is waiting for that. There's going to be drum rolls right up until until Thursday. Any predictions? Yes, I think LVMH numbers will be outstanding because of Louis Vuitton. Yeah. And even Dior. But I think it'll be Louis Vuitton again that will drive LVMH sales. And they've done a, a, you know, a great job in terms of merchandising, opening new stores, uh, and making sure that you know the digital part of Louis Vuitton is absolutely gorgeous. So all around, Louis Vuitton has succeeded. Laura Piana, as you pointed out, quiet luxury. I mean, Laura Piana sales will also go through the roof. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, they don't break out all these individual brands' numbers. So we really don't know how the individual brands perform, but they break it out by you know the groups like the fashion retail group, fashion leather goods, and wines and spirits. Wines and spirits, I'm not too sure. It'll take some time to bounce back. But, you know, that's attributable mostly to everyone's trying to be healthy in the last few months. And you also have these drugs that are basically creating, you know, weight loss, like Ozempic and all that. And that basically dampens your appetite. So it's it's pharmaceuticals and it's consumers, uh, you know, concerned about their alcohol intake. And then, of course, the younger generations are not drinking as much uh, because, especially with the LVMH brands, they all drinks to celebrate. And I feel that uh, the younger generations are a little a little hesitant to celebrate. So... Uh, no, I, uh, I would agree with you. Yeah, I think wine and spirits are still going to be soft uh, in the LVMH portfolio. Jewelry and watches are going to be really strong. And leather goods, I think, are actually going to do well. You know, in the Luxury Outlook Summit, one of the first speakers that was there, Nora, I can't pronounce her name, is it Lyon? Nora Klein-Willinghoffer. Klein-Willinghoffer from Kearney spoke about the headwinds luxury brands were facing in 2023 and the various strategies they applied to address those challenging market dynamics. And one of them was consolidation via M&A. And I also bring up Richemont before because they've really been a part of a growing number of M&A deals and funding rounds by some of the biggest names in the fashion and luxury space. If you remember last month, Richemont announced that its agreement to sell a majority stake in Uke's Net-A-Portier to Farfetch, an investment firm, had been terminated following this last-minute sale of Farfetch to a South Korean e-commerce giant. It was very mm-hmm. interesting. Here's Farfetch. You know, for more than a decade, they've been this global retail powerhouse and was the tech darling that powered much of the online luxury shopping. And I remember, I don't know if you remember this too, all the hype around the company and its founder, Jose Neves, had been building and the share soared by more than like 50% on the first day of trading, giving the company a valuation of over $6 billion. They peaked during the pandemic boom in online shopping and luxury spending and busted as the post-pandemic spending frenzy winded down. And it begs the big question, with luxury brands wanting greater control of their products, can a third-party digital platform for luxury goods ever be profitable? It's a very good question. Um, I I feel with luxury, you've pointed this out, they want to, comp- uh, to control the entire experience from soup to nuts. So from the very... Uh, procurement of the raw materials all the way to the finishing, the stitching, the manufacturing, the distribution, and ultimately the sale in store or online. Because when they control the entire process, 
that's when they ensure that quality is consistent throughout the whole experience. Right. At the end of the day, it's about controlling the customer experience. And that's what it's about. You talk about Farfetch. And I mean, Netapotere was in the same situation. Uh, and you had a few others too, you know. Uh, you have My Teresa, right. uh, which is still doing well. And then you've got, um, who's the other one? Matches Fashion. It, you know, out of all of these brands out there, the one that had the strongest legs to stand on was Netapotere. And, you know, Mr. Porter. Because they got the buy-in from a lot of luxury brands. So they got a fairly decent assortment. But they didn't get you know, all the big brands in. And if you're an online department store, assortment is key. The only reason why I would walk into an online store uh, that is not the monobrand store is to see if the products, similar products from different brands. So I can compare and contrast, right? And if you don't have that wide range, then people won't come to you. So again, there was that factor and also the factor that you pouring so much money into that business model. And what happens is with luxury, people want to walk into the stores. They want to experience it. They want to touch it. They want to, you know, smell it, right? And yeah. online doesn't give you that. Online is great when you know what you want and you go back and you replenish. Uh, online is great when you want to go discover data and details about the product and then you walk into the store. So if you're trying to navigate an online department store and be the best one out there, you better have everybody's product, including Hermes, LVMH brands, Chanel, um, Caring, Richemont. That wasn't the case with Farfetch. It isn't the case with Netta Porter. It isn't the case with Mr. Porter. Chanel doesn't even sell most of his products online. Right. Just the right? beauty. And since we're talking about transactions in M&A, looking back at last year's activity, it looks like mergers and acquisitions are clearly back on the table again, and IPOs too. Dealmakers kind of sleepwalk going into 2023, not ready to commit with high inflation, high interest rates, and fears of recession muddying the outlook for just about everything. But a funny thing happened as the world waited for this recession. The rich kept spending. The economic worries subsided some, and the luxury deal market awakened this past summer, not gradually, but all at once. And if you remember, the jolt of life came from Caring, which snatched up the high-end fragrance house Creed for like a billion and a half dollars last summer. And then that was followed up you know, with a deal to buy a chunk of Valentino with an option to buy full control of the brand at some point. The Valentino deal was a shout to the world that luxury ain't dead. And to some degree, it seems Caring is playing catch-up, trying to regain the momentum that perhaps it lost as its largest brand, Gucci, has slowed. Did that Valentino deal surprise you at all? It did not surprise me because Caring is um, in a kind of awkward position because if you look at the four or five big groups, uh, you know, there's LVMH, which 75 brands. Caring probably has about 15 to 20 brands. Uh, Richemont, I forget the number, but it's mostly watches and jewelry. Right. And, uh, you know, Dunhill and a few others. Uh, Pouge, uh, which has a few uh, brands here and there. You've got the Chalhoub Group, which owns Christoffel and a few other, and the malls and all that in the Middle East. Um, and then you've got Hermes, which has Hermes. And then it's got John Lobb and a couple of others and Chanel, which owns you know, 
a few subsidiary brands. And there's Prada Group, which owns Church's Shoes and, you know, Miu Miu, which is owned as a sister brand. But when you look at Caring, you know, Caring had a big position in sportswear and uh, sports footwear when they sold their stake in Adidas. And, you know, they exited that. They were limited to their luxury brands, but they couldn't stand up to LVMH because, right. you know, if you don't have Gucci, Caring is not a very big group. And um, with Gucci, they miscalculated, but now they're trying to make up for lost time. So you mentioned their acquisition of Creed. Uh, I think that was almost double of what you mentioned. I think it was $3 billion oh, really? for Creed. Yeah, and they bought it from a private equity group that bought it from uh, the Creed, the the family that, you know, ran Creed for six or seven generations. Yeah, very long time. And, and Creed, as you know, is one of the most exclusive perfume brands out there. It's, in fact, one of the biggest. It's one of the top three, four men. And uh, so they got the, the perfume franchise there. And my thinking is they're going to turn Creed into a lifestyle brand because they've got that market for men there and also for women because, you know, it's very exclusive. Then they went into um, um, Valentino and they bought 30%. And Valentino, again, is a historic brand. It's, you know, changed hands a few times. And then very, I expect in a few years, a couple of years or so, they'll get a majority control of that brand too. Um, and then they basically have pitched for CAA, which is, you know, the rep firm for all the movie stars okay, right. and all that's that, because right. that's $7 billion. And that's, they want to basically have a toehold in the entertainment world, because that's where they can not only control the messaging, through product placement and all that, and you know, because it's through popular media. So that's their strategy there. But they've got to fix Gucci. So no matter how many acquisitions they make, if your flagship isn't um, you know, resonating with the market, you have a problem. So um, I'm sure that you know they're paying attention. I don't see any, I don't know if they've announced a permanent leader for Gucci yet. Uh, but I expect no, I they'll be so. doing that in the next few months. It seemed those acquisitions were all about trying to help them get their mojo back. And you're right. I mean, you can buy, you can make all the acquisitions you want, but if you can't fix, fix Gucci, that's going to be a bigger issue. Yeah, I totally agree. And there were some other deals, you know, Richemont jumped in at some point buying a controlling stake in the renowned Italian luxury shoemaker Gianvito Rossi. And that partnership will probably be beneficial for the company's next stage of growth. There's really going to be a continued activity in the luxury sector that targets this ultra high net worth individual. And we're not seeing it only in fashion and luxury goods, but you're also seeing it in fragrances, obviously with greed, and you're going to see it with beauty too. Yes. Um, but let's not forget real estate as well. And so real estate, of course. So today that we, we, we recorded this, podcast on January 22nd, uh, literally an hour before this podcast, not even an hour, a half hour before this podcast, I got a press release from Caring saying that they are buying uh, the southeast corner of Fifth Avenue, 715 to 717 Fifth Avenue for $963 million. Wow. It's a building that's directly across from Trump Tower. And uh, the corner store uh, you know, uh, it's in fact 
the where the Armani store it's near the Armani store or it's yeah, in the exactly Armani store. Yeah. You know? And I mean that's a very, very prized corner because directly across you have the Gucci store, which is there, obviously their brand. Then a kitty corner from them, you have the Crown Building and you have the Amman Hotel right there. And then you've got Bulgari and you've got, you know, Van Cleef and Apples and Bergdorf. And on the other side, you've got uh, Tiffany's and Louis Vuitton. So they're basically making an investment to almost the tune of a billion dollars in this complex. And I'm sure they have plans for retail and offices and all that kind of stuff. So uh, their strategy is evolving slightly differently from LVMH. Uh, in the sense that LVMH is, you know, always on the prowl for big brands. The last purchase was Tiffany's. And Tiffany's uh, is now, you know, completely reinvigorated. But, you know, the people at Tiffany's now under tremendous pressure to deliver growth. Right. And so they're expanding there too. So uh, most recently, Tiffany's launched on Tmall Luxury Pavilion. And that just followed Chamay, which is another LVMH brand their presence on uh, the Tmall Luxury Pavilion. So they're going all out to, uh, you know, acquire the Chinese digital luxury consumer. And then Caring uh, is basically going on its own to, you know, get into entertainment, real estate. And, you know, I'm sure there'll be more and more money for a couple of my acquisitions. Yeah, I mean, what it's telling me is that, you know, if you look at the earnings releases, and this announcement you just made, that these luxury houses are essentially saying that the aspirational consumer is not doing well. So what we're going to do is we're going to just make more deals that focus around the ultra high net worth individual and how they're shopping. Do you agree with that? Yes. You see, uh, with luxury, there are two types of growth. One is organic and the other one is acquired. And you alternate in years where you feel one channel is not performing as well as the other. So um, the thing with luxury is the uh, the issue over the model, right? Uh, if you're old school, less is more. If you're new school, you're going for growth while maintaining exclusivity and desirability. You know, uh, you're exclusive while being inclusive because you want many more, many more people coming in. Right. And you know, one of the things that emerged from our Luxury Outlook Summit last week was how uh, some brands are shying away from using the word aspirational consumer to emerging consumer, you see? Because they feel aspiration doesn't do justice to that type of customer. But that customer, the aspiration or emerging customer is heavily dependent on their sentiment, like how they feel about their job security, how they feel about, you know, uh, their lifestyle, because when they're saving up, that's when they're buying luxury products. That's when they want to join the tribe and the club, right? So that desire will never stop as long as these luxury brands have proper marketing and they basically identify a need. But you have to keep your eyes on the established high net worth and ultra high net worth customer because their wealth is growing by leaps and bounds. All you have to do is look at the stock markets, look at the indices, uh, all of them have gone through the roof in the last few weeks, right? Mm -hmm. um, once you tamp down on inflation and the Fed doesn't raise the rates, basically the world's your oyster. So you are seeing 
all the stock markets, whether it's the United States, the New York Stock Exchange, or NASDAQ, and then you go uh, the FTSE in London, um, Hang Seng Index in Hong Kong, or the Frankfurt, uh, the DAX, and then you've got um, Paris, the Paris Bourse. All of these indices are performing well. So the wealth of the ultra-high net worth is highly indexed to the stock market and to the value of other assets such as real estate and art. And the, all three have held up. So I'm very optimistic that when luxury brands refocus and make sure that their products are more exclusive, they're targeting a need that will be met. I'll give you an ex another example. Uh, Bernard Arno just uh, named his youngest son, I think his name is Frederick yep. uh, Arno, to head LVMH watches. Mm -hmm. Now, Frederick initially was uh, trained on the Louis Vuitton uh, watch division. And the first thing he did when he got there was he got rid of all the cheap watches, right. all the low-end br uh, watch uh, brands. And he said, I'm going to make the Louis Vuitton watch very exclusive and limited in number. So he did that. And he's confident that that strategy is the way to go for Louis Vuitton because he wants to make that watch a collectible and not just another fashion product, right? So they are eyeing the market that Patek Philippe and Vacheron Constantine have right now and Rolex to some extent. So Mr. Arno named his son to head all of the LVMH watches, including Hublot and Tag, Hoyer, and of course, the Louis Vuitton and all those brands that have watches there. I'm curious to see what he does and how exclusive he makes those watch, watch brands within their various labels. So you're going to see, you know, a dual strategy here where they're going to push um, the boundaries to make some products really, really exclusive because, you know, the rich don't like many people having the same thing that they have, right? It's all about exclusivity. When the higher you go, the more expensive the product, the fewer the products you have to sell. So I won't be surprised at some point if LVMH are carrying or Richemont, I don't know about Richemont, but LVMH, you know, intensifies its focus in the travel segment because that's the one segment in luxury which is universally acknowledged to uh, post fabulous growth this year. And, you know, people are traveling and you can predict that because all these uh, travel bookings have been made way in advance. And also the charter flights, uh, yachts, uh, leasing of yachts, purchasing yachts, uh, and all that activity is up. So I'm wondering if LVMH enters the yachting business because they're already in the hotel business. They already have Belmont for trains. And then they go Cheval Blanc for hotels. Right. But if you, you know, if you license your name to the yachting business, absolutely, uh, it can be a, uh, you know, a success for them. Yeah, and there's no question, carrying Richemont and LVMH are going to go shopping this year. But I'm also wondering, you're talking about yachts and you're talking about travel, come other, you know, tr tr uh, investing in travel. Don't you think these houses are also looking for these authentic brands with deep heritage? And that's what they're going to be hunting for. You know, there are fewer and fewer of those out there. They don't make them every day. 
and you have to grow them and build them. So I think to me, those are the types of brands that they might be have the, you know might be on their radar. Um, when you look at when you look at luxury brands out there, I remember when I had to enter this field a few decades ago, covering this field, I did a count of how many true luxury brands were out there, and I came up with about 300, 300 brands. Mm -hmm. And that number has stayed pretty much consistent. Very few uh, new brands have cropped up in the last two decades that I've been, two, two and a half decades that I've been, you know, in, covering luxury. And um, and the fact is that if you look at the brands that are out there that are still independent, I think in the bigger group, the, the bigger brands, uh, Giorgio Armani is a top price, price you know, Giorgio Armani. Mm -hmm. uh, Mr. Armani is, I think, 89 years old, going strong. May he have a long life. But he's been very clear about the future of his brand. He took, I remember him, uh, you know, giving this interview and saying that he doesn't care what happens to uh, the brand after he goes. But then he structured a trust for his brand. Mm -hmm. And then he put his nephew, his niece, uh, Roberta, I think her name is, and then either nephew or another niece, I think. But there are two family members involved in the trust. So basically, I don't know if those trusts can be dissolved, but that's the way he wants the brand to continue after him. But, you know, everything can be broken up. So I see after Mr. Armani, I see if Armani is up for sale, they'll probably find a home within uh, Caring or LVMH. So that is one of the big brands out there that is, you know, kind of independent and has scale across the world. But if you look at the smaller brands, they're mostly British, you know, um, and they're heritage brands. They don't have the revenue or the scale or the name recognition that the French or Italian brands have. But there's still a lot of small Italian brands. In Italy, seems like it's going to be a hotbed of M&A activity this year. If you remember the pandemic weakened some of these smaller luxury houses more than others, especially those that were already suffering before COVID-19, which kind of dealt the last blow to them. Many are family-owned brands that didn't have the financial resources to support investments to relaunch, just never recovered. And we've heard talks have been swirling around from other brands that are under the microscope and could potentially change hands as well. You know, there's been rumblings about Missoni exploring a potential sale and other storied brand, La Perla, also been through challenging times and they may be, may be on the block. So there's, I think there's still a lot of a small Italian houses that are, that could be up for sale and could be attractive to larger houses. Yes. I mean, I'm not denying that these small brands, uh, you know, are in play or could be in play, but I'm talking about the billion dollar plus brands, you see, because when you look at the smaller brands, sure, they can find a home, you know, uh, Missoni has, it's Missoni is like Ferragamo, all the family are involved in it. Plus they also have, I think, some outside investment in Missoni. I, I may be wrong, but uh, that's my understanding. But Ferragamo is another brand to watch because their numbers weren't that good for 2023. And although the family is very proud of their heritage and their business and their place in society, it is to me, when I look at the smaller Italian brands, why would an LVMH buy them if it could not scale them worldwide? When you look at LVH's numbers, basically 10 brands 
or a dozen brands out of those 75 carry the weight for the entire portfolio. You see? And the same thing with caring. Uh, I believe Gucci is either one third or somewhere around there of all caring sales, or is it 50%? I forget what the number is. All right. So whenever you're buying these brands, if you're a caring or you're a Gucci, you're buying it for one or two reasons. One is to see that it doesn't end up in your competitor's hands. Two is to control the raw material source. Three, it is to basically, uh, if they have good leases and locations and a great market reputation. And four, if it, it fills a hole in the portfolio. So obviously, there are plenty of small artisanal uh, Italian brands that could basically, as you know, the founder generation grows older and the next generation doesn't want to carry on, you can see an exit right there. So it, to me, it'll be normal to see three or four brands exchanging hands in this coming in this year. I don't doubt that. But when you're looking at the mega mergers of the bigger brands out there, that is, I'm looking at the department stores. I'm looking at the retailers there. So uh, again, yesterday, or was it this weekend, or was it today, Macy's rejected uh, $5.8 billion bid, right? Now, Macy's owns the Bloomingdale's brand. Bloomingdale's obviously has quite a few luxury brands that it sells in their stores. So someone like that, basically, can one of these big groups enter retail? We don't know that, right? Um, same thing, Neiman Marcus. I mean, Neiman Marcus has been reinventing itself over the years. Uh, Nordstrom has been reinventing itself and Saks, obviously, because his parents uh, have deep pockets, you know, and they've got fabulous real estate. That's what's saving Saks. So to me, I'll be looking for m and activity in luxury retail particularly with stores. They've been rumbling about the Sachs-Neiman-Marcus merger for a while. Yes. And they keep denying it, that it's going to happen. Well, the thing is, look, do it's, it's the business model that's under threat. And that is something yep. that you have to be mindful of. Every time, you know, every business model has a life cycle and then you've got to reinvent yourself. And if luxury brands are out there trying to control the experience, they don't want to create additional collections. I mean, if you're a luxury brand and you're supplying the wholesale chain, you know how that works. You have to produce almost 16 collections a year. And then you have to have something unique for the department store. It has to be unique. That's not found anywhere else. And then you, unless you're very strong, you can't control the pricing. And then come the holiday season, these guys go wild and offer 30 to 40 or to 50% discounts. What does that do for your branding? Right. Right. So I think what luxury brands and their parent groups are trying to do is control the customer experience and control the brand experience. Those are two things that they've got to make sure that if they want to have double digit growth in 2024, 2025, convince the Chinese customer to come back in droves the way they did pre-pandemic and you know even during the pandemic the way to do that is make sure the product is more exclusive the brand uh value stays strong and the customer experience is consistent so i want to talk about the other side of the pond right here in america the american side of the luxury business tapestry which owns coach kate spade and Stuart weitzman seems to want to be the new luxury conglomerate in town 
And last summer, Tapestry acquired Capri Holdings to better compete in the global luxury market. Capri's portfolio, I think, includes Versace, Michael Kors, and Jimmy Choo. This acquisition will bring six of the world's largest designer brands together under one roof, creating a U.S.-based luxury conglomerate that could be capable of competing in a global market. It will essentially be the LVMH of U.S., if not perhaps the richemont of the, of, of the U.S., and it seems to me that the acquisition will let Tapestry reach customers with a more diverse range of incomes. So one can imagine that middle-class shoppers who once purchased higher-end entry-level luxury goods might, in leaner times, be more likely to splash out on a coach tote than a Hermes wallet. So what do you think of this deal and its potential? It's a great idea, but I don't know if they can... Um they can compete with the allure of French and Italian brands, um, you know, and the, you know, even the British uh, brands out there. I mean, I understand Jimmy Choo is great. I mean, it's, it is obviously a British brand. Um, and then you've got Michael Kors. Coach, I don't consider luxury. Um, and then Versace, obviously, is uh, Italian. But are they really exclusive luxury brands? That's the question you have to ask. Right. Who is their customer? Right. And so um, if you had to just do a kind of a quadrant with LVMH brands, Caring, Richemont, Hermes, Chanel, Armani, and Prada, and then you throw in these brands, You'll see where they fall. You know, they're not in the top right. They're not even the top left. They're somewhere in the middle. And but maybe that's where they want to live. Maybe that's where maybe they, that's right. maybe that's what they're going for. So if that if that's their strategy, then fabulous. Then I would suspect that as they grow bigger, and you don't want them to sink under debt, but as they grow bigger, when the time comes, and if Ralph Lauren is in play, they should go for Ralph Lauren. Right. You see, to me, that would complete. That would be the American, a true American brand. Now, I don't consider all of Ralph Lauren luxury. It's not. Uh, it's got the Ralph Lauren collection. But Ralph Lauren has style. You see, Ralph Lauren has a lifestyle. And what caring, what tapestry needs to do is spin something common. What is common between Jimmy Choo and Versace? What is common? There has to be, you know, when you look at a brand portfolio, there has to be a thread that runs through each and every one of these products. It may be a tangible thread. It may be an intangible thread. Can you run the thread between Tapestry six brands? What is it? What, is this, what does Tapestry stand for? Does it just stand for becoming another conglomerate? Does it want to be a GE of American luxury? Does it want to be an ITT? If you remember the 80s and 90s, they own yeah. pretty much everything, you know? So... Their strategy has to be very firm. Who do I want to be when I grow up? And that is important. I saw a very big, a big missed opportunity for a lot of luxury brands when Brooks Brothers faltered. And, you know, Brooks Brothers had a lock on the preppy market, and then the quality started deteriorating over the years. And then, you know, your the Italian uh, family, uh, the Del Vecchios, they bought them. Uh, for $650 million. And of course, then Brooks Brothers created. And then it ended up with, I think, the Authentic Brands Group or, or somebody, and then they revived it. And then they changed the entire 
the quality of the shirts and clothes is completely different. They went to all these cheaper Chinese vendors and they basically, I hate to say this, they wrecked a fabulous preppy American brand that could have been a counterpoint to Ralph Lauren. Right. You see? Now yeah. that is where I see if Tapestry wants to occupy space that's open, it's to take preppy, to take Americana, to take the American casual lifestyle and become almost like the Armani of the United States, you see? And that's where they can succeed. Uh, but if you look at Versace, Versace's flash, Jimmy Choo is muted. It's still got, got color and all that, but it's not that. Michael Kors is flash. And, you know, so that's something common. Then you've got Coach, which I don't know, depending on who leads Coach, it goes through ups and downs. They had, they had this deal with Disney and then they had other collaborations. Um, so I feel that if you want to build a conglomerate, it shouldn't be the case of a solution chasing a problem. And that's what I feel they're trying to do right now is scale and just grow. You know, we've talked about all these M&A deals and the bottom line is scale matters more than ever in luxury, whether that means retail space or purchasing media, customer base or negotiating with department stores on concession agreements. So aside from being largely driven by the pursuit of scale, perhaps what's attractive in these acquisitions in the future will be focused on capabilities like artificial intelligence, authentication technology, or advanced analytics. I can see the use of innovative technology providing a unique selling point for a company as well as better use of assets. So perhaps instead, you know, yes, scale is important, but now these other factors play into M&A deals. Do you agree? Yes. Um, who knows what the world of 2030 will look like? Um, you know, you could have a major world war before then, the way things are going. You will have a lot of instability. And it doesn't help that with AI rampant, you're going to see tremendous job losses in the next three years. Uh, will the job losses come at the bottom end of the market, the middle tier, or the high end? We don't know yet, right? So you have to always keep your eye on the customer, no matter what we talk about. Will there be a customer with enough deep pockets to buy your luxury product? So you want to make sure that if you are a luxury brand and you're on the prowl for uh, you know, uh, another um, brand that complements what you have in your portfolio, you're looking for a few things. One, what is scarce in the marketplace? Like what type of raw materials can you control that your competitors will not be able to get hold of? What type of technology can you own that your competitors will not be able to leverage in their marketing and their e-commerce and m-commerce, right? And those two factors will be the modern um, criteria for acquisitions. In addition to obviously a great brand name, a great history, uh, you know, um, those are the usuals, you know, like, you know, it's a deal and we need them. A vanity that also comes into play. Um, I look at, I like, I look at LVMH and I won't be surprised if by 2030, they'll have a hundred brands in their group. There's 75 right now. I won't be surprised. Mm -hmm. Even caring will basically uh, acquire more because it's the game where, you know, heft is victory. I hate to say this because yeah. then you lock up the best leases in real estate, in retail. You have the best talent coming to you. 
because of your scale. So luxury is becoming a game of scale uh, for the very big brands and for the smallest brands, it's artisanal. But the fact is that I foresee much more m and activity in the next two years, uh, especially as the older guard in many of these companies retires or wants to sell out. And I'm very curious to see what happens to Mr. Arno when he passes the baton to um, all his five kids, you know, and whether they're all living in harmony or, you know, the LVMH group splinters into different divisions. That itself could be a reality in the next decade. Jay Gatsby, he said that the rich are always with us. So, uh, you know, no matter what, there'll always be an Arno amidst us. Well, Mickey, a new year presents a new M&A opportunities in the luxury sector and should make for a really interesting future. And at the end of the day, like you said, the mantra will continue to be keeping the brand relevant and the customers happy. That wraps up January's episode of Luxury Stance. Thanks to our listeners for tuning in. Mickey, it's always a pleasure shooting the breeze with you about luxury. Thank you, Scott. And I look forward to our next episode and uh, have a wonderful, wonderful January. <laughs>